I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is James Drinkwater, the president of Amwins. James is one of the most successful broking entrepreneurs of his generation, but he's also someone who doesn't give a lot of interviews, and so I've been working to get him on the show for quite some time. I'm really glad I finally did because this is a really lively and fast-paced interview with someone right at the top of our industry and at a fascinating time in the marketplace. A massive wholesale broking business like Amwins gets to see where all the stress points are in the market far sooner than anyone else, and here we identify these and point to the most likely solutions. But it's in our broader conversation that I think we learn the most about this leading wholesaler and its global strategy. Transforming from being the largest US wholesaler To becoming a dominant global player will require a clear strategy and a lot of time. And that's why it's refreshing to hear James talk about this, because unlike many in our business, he certainly gives the impression that he has the patience to play the long game, and he refuses to compromise the group's wholesale identity and culture. Also, as a Londoner, it's heartening to hear that the group's London operations are set to play a key role in its global expansion. James is always frank and a straight talker, and our half-hour chat rattles by in no time. Enjoy the podcast. James, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks, Mark. I'm delighted to be here. I've been trying to reel you in for well over a year now, and it's so good to get you on the show. So you're over here in London. What's the market like? The market is full of opportunities, but it's incredibly tough. You talk to our property brokers, and they're very stressed because of what they're seeing in the market. And they're seeing constant price increases. There's changing dynamics in what people are buying, but it's a very difficult market. But plenty of opportunity in London right now. It's funny that that also it's probably been one of the longest, my experience of the markets over many years and yours, I'm sure, would be that the harder markets are always shorter than softer markets. And it's sort of death by a thousand cuts in soft and then hard, tends to be pretty hard, then it calms down, you know, hard for a year and then starts slowly cutting again. (laughs) Well, I think this market is very different from the markets we've seen in the past. The past hard markets have been driven by single events or multiple storms in a given year. But this hard market is driven by a number of different factors. Obviously, the fact that we've had five one in 100 year events in the past six years has put a lot of pressure on the property market. But you've also got social and economic inflation. You've got the issues with political unrest, specifically around Ukraine. And then you've got an interest rate environment, which is changing a lot of things. Yeah, so those property brokers, I mean, they've probably not had a prolonged hard market this length probably in any of their careers. And that's now we're talking to people with quite a lot of grey hair, I would have thought. I don't know about you. Yeah, I don't think they have. And I don't think it's going to be a market that is going to change anytime soon. If you look at the treaty reinsurers in the marketplace today, they're predicting that the market is going to stay firm for a while longer. So it's going to be a challenge, but it's one of those things that's going to provide us with opportunities to serve our clients and take care of their needs. It was clear that the reinsurance market was going to reset at 1-1-2023. I was clearing up all the stories around that. And I suppose the last question mark in my mind was, oh, what's happened to Ajit Jain and Berkshire Hathaway? Usually, there would be the market that would come out to play at this time in the market when the market's absolutely resetting. It's very clear that they're going to get the sort of pricing they want. 
And there was a bit of an absence, of course, because often with, with Berkshire, there's not a huge amount of information available. And then you get the information points. And we've just recently had the annual shareholders meeting. And of course, and there was a Jeet with the biggest smile I've ever seen. And I suppose it's sort of the smile is directly proportional to the hardness of the reinsurance market and therefore the property market. Does it seem to be clear then for me to infer from what you've just said that that reinsurance market hardening, obviously we'd had a hardening property market before, then the reinsurers got in on the act. And now that's given another new wave back into insurance and and insurance is able to carry those new prices and is selling those new prices into the market. Well, I think there's a number of different things. Obviously, clients are reeling from the price changes. They've had 21 quarters of price increases. And so it's been a long protracted hard market. And I think people are starting to look at it and say that they've got to buy product in a different fashion. But I think the other thing that we're seeing is there's no new capital coming into this marketplace. And in the years gone by, we've seen new capital come into the marketplace, which has allowed the market to soften or even level out a little bit. But we haven't seen any new capital come in. This has been a little bit, hasn't it? But it's been very marginal and very differentiated to the sort of players, very top performing players that would expect to get capital whenever they wanted to. But it's not been destabilizing capital in any sense, and certainly no new startup capital. In terms of that dynamic, what happened to the reinsurers in the preceding couple of years was that they were squeezed, that their retro got more expensive, and that they sort of suffered that. Is there any sense that insurers are starting to absorb some of the higher reinsurance costs themselves and not pass it on to the insurance market because the insurance market can't bear anymore after 20 successive quarters? Everybody's telling us that the insurers are taking higher retentions, but I've not seen them change their strategy. They're just trying to sort of push for more rate. They're changing terms and conditions, and it's being pushed down to the buyer. And obviously, from your perspective, as Amazon being a great wholesale surplus, excess and surplus lines broker, presumably this is just feeding more demand. You're not seeing demand tailing off in any way, that there's more distress, more clients needing more solutions or thinking of changing the way they do things. Yeah, specifically on the property side, that's what we're seeing. But there are other areas of the business which are softening. Yeah, we've seen softening in rates for DNO, public company DNO and cyber. But it's a very different marketplace than we've seen in the past. You know, there's been a secular change rather than just a cyclical change. And I think as an industry, we spend way too much time trying to predict where the market's going. This is the market we're in. We've got to live with it. We've got to do the best we can. I know that we've got the men and women that are working on our clients' business every single day that have the capability and capacity to do it. And so it is a market of opportunity, but it's one where we are certainly seeing a great deal of stress within our broker ranks. Yeah. To have so many years one after the other where you don't get any time off, it doesn't sound like. But then that's a good thing. That's really, you know, as a broker leader, you think we'd rather have it that way than the other way. We'd rather have too much work than too little. Yeah. The market will go soft at some point, I have no doubt. And our brokers will be equally stressed as they see pricing and revenue go down. And obviously, and you work twice as hard on the soft market as you do in the hard market. Without a doubt. To hang on to things and just keep up with what's going on and who's undercutting you this week. Without a doubt. And I think that's one of the things that we benefit from being a large organization. We watch the market all of the time. We're always out there trying to find new capital and new capacity for our clients. And so we'll just carry on doing what we're doing. And as Am wins, you've got heft in the marketplace. Are you able to find some of that? You know, it's the ultimate job of a broker when the market isn't quite working or when the market's distressed is to go and engender new capital, find new capital, coax it out of investors and package it up so that it can serve the market. Have you been able to have any success? Obviously, you've got the sort of scale where you probably could. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder 
that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com, and I'll do everything I can to get you started. Yeah, I would use the word scale rather than heft. Heft gives the impression <laughs> well, it that... it sounds we, like you're a bully, but exactly, I didn't mean that. We're not. We've got scale. <laughs> we've got people in lots of different geographies trying to find new capacity. And we have that ability. And I think you've seen that certainly in London. And we've seen that in the US where we've been building more products and capabilities for our clients. And how's that coming to market? Is it MGA's most likely channel or what sort of channels? We've seen dramatic growth in our MGA side. We've got about $4.5 billion worth of premium volume through our delegated authority. And we continue to grow that space and we'll continue to focus on that. I think there's a lot of opportunity in that area specifically because we've built data technology. We've got underwriting expertise. We recently hired Mark Benaki to be our chief underwriting officer who's helped us in this space. This has all been recognized by the mere fact that we got the PA1 from AM Best, which we were very excited about. And this is that new classification they've got for delegated authority. Rating of MGAs, correct? Yes. And you're probably the first person. We to were it. the first. So that's the equivalent of sort of AAA in that space. Absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's good to you have to be so much more sophisticated these days. So now with $4.5 billion of premium, you can tell all the paper providers backing that. These days, you can tell them almost where, you know, where every last cent has come from. Look, I hope that we can. And I think that we've demonstrated that. Markets look at us differently. I would hope that they look at us differently because of the tools that we've built over a long period of time. One of the things which I always find interesting is this description that the ENS world has just blossomed. We've been working at this very hard for a long time, and we've been building the platform, we're building our tools, we've been building our capabilities. I suppose it's easier to scale something once you've built all the routes and the channels and all the back office part of it. Then it's much easier to scale, and then it suddenly looks like it's growing really, really fast. And then that often in insurance, that worries people. But I suppose what you're saying is that you've built that infrastructure over a long period. We have. Early on, Steve DiCarlo, our first CEO, said it's all about time and money. And when he said that, we had no money, but we had plenty of time. <laughs> That's really good. It's interesting what you were saying about this being a secular change. And that's always something in the back of my mind. In a cyclical industry, every time something changes, you just, there's always a part in the back of your mind saying, oh, this is going to change back when the market changes. But you're saying, no, that's not true. I don't think it's going to change back. It's not going to just sort of flip back to the way it was. There's certain classes of business and certain industries which will remain in the ENS world and remain in London. And I think that oftentimes clients recognize the jobs that their brokers have done in times like this. And hopefully we'll see those clients reward us by being loyal and staying with us. But I don't think you're going to see New York City construction business and transportation business and cat property go back into the admitted market to the extent that it ever was in that marketplace. Yes, it's interesting. I remember Steve spoke at a conference that I organized seven or eight years ago, and we were talking about the distribution chain and how it, to the outside, it might look a bit convoluted if it's going from a retail broker to a wholesale broker through an MGA through something else. To, and he, he listed a very improbable example of about seven people in this chain. And then he asked the audience, well, why do you think it happens that way? 
it was a rhetorical question, he answered himself and said, it's because it's better that way. Yeah. And it was very hard to answer that. So of course it was. And the people that we've got who work for us have built relationships both with the clients and the carriers and have been able to deliver solutions for them. So they might come, if I'm putting words in your mouth, they might come because the admitted market stopped doing it, but they hopefully will stay because they're getting a superior product, a more specific and bespoke product that is better and also better service. I hope so. One of the things which is interesting about insurance is sometimes we never learn from some of these events. And what you've learned is good service. You've got to invest in service. You've got to invest in people. You've got to invest in technology. You've got to invest in service. We've got to make sure that we are doing things for our clients that they can either not do for themselves or they don't want to do for themselves. Yeah. And in terms of that, you were saying it's not my job to predict the market, but I suppose partly your level of senior management in a large organization, you do have to have a view of the market, of where it's going, because you have to also prepare yourself to hire X many more people or, or not hire because you don't think the market's got great prospects for next year. So you have to look a little bit into the future. So how optimistic are you at the moment in terms of you presumably are you still bringing on more people or trying to get the same number of people to do more, be more efficient, whatever? Let's put it this way. We've worked in a softer market for a lot longer than we've worked in a hard market. And so we are always looking at the future and we're trying to be thoughtful and deliberate about our hiring strategy, our training and development strategy. And yes, we've had to hire a lot of people, which is great. It gives the company scale and it gives us capabilities that I don't think we had five years ago. And of course, you don't want to hire a load of people and then have to lay them off just as soon as the market. Absolutely. And that's just not our style. Amwins would never do that. What about in the space you're in, you know, the core US wholesale market, which you are a leading player, has consolidated an enormous amount and you've played part of your own role in that. Do you think there's any more to go in that? And now that we've coalesced perhaps around a big three and we're kind of in insurance broking and reinsurance broking, we're quite used to the idea of a big three. It seems to be the right sort of number. Two's company, three's a crowd. So <laughs> if three is a crowd, that's, that's probably quite good for a competitive market. Do you feel that we're nearer the end of that consolidation game? I think as we look at the marketplace, there is still a lot of wholesalers out there. And I think consolidation will continue to happen. So still some more regional ones, I suppose. There's more regional ones. There's specialty wholesale brokers that add value, but they've got to sort of want to be part of a larger organization. And one of the things that we have said to all of our colleagues is we didn't think we were going to do another large acquisition. And then we partnered with Worldwide. It just happened that way, that it was a great opportunity. Worldwide was a great brand and it was a large acquisitive wholesale broker. And we're very excited that we partnered with them. And it's been a fantastic transaction for us. But will there be more M&A? Certainly, without a doubt. I think where we look at opportunities for M&A, it's in the benefit side, on the program side, and certainly in London. As you get larger and larger, I suppose any M&A becomes less transformational for you and also presumably less risk, less execution risk. Certainly. And so our focus is building this company organically, training, developing, recruiting and retaining the best possible people. Obviously, organic is going to be the absolute main day today. And sounds like the M&A is more opportunistic that if opportunities arise, of course, you're always going to look at them. We are known to be an acquisitive company. We get to see everything. And sometimes we decide that we want to partner with somebody. And other times we look at the transaction opportunity as something that we need to take a pass on. I suppose if you threw a rock up in the air and it hit someone on Lime Street and asked them what Zam wins, you'd say, well, they're the biggest US wholesaler. What else do you want them to say? You know, in 10 years' time, would you like to say that you're a global wholesaler? And because obviously you've been present here in London for a long time, but then 
do you have more of an international strategy, a global strategy? Yeah, we have a global strategy, certainly, but we're not going to plant flags in different places yeah. just because we want to have a flag in that country. I think you can build a global strategy from London. And I think we've got a phenomenal team in London. Nate Mathis, who's our new CEO, has taken over from Frank Murphy, who did a fantastic job of building this company. But Nate and his leadership team are doing a great job of attracting specialty capabilities in London. And I think if, as you said, if you throw a rock up and hit somebody in Lime Street, what I want people to know is that we're dedicated to this marketplace. We're absolutely focused on building London because I think it's an exciting place for us to be. And as other wholesale specialty hubs emerge, obviously there are places like Singapore or Miami or whatever. If those hubs emerge and they're a good place from which to service global customers, you'd want to be there, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And we've got a small platform in Miami. We constantly look at opportunities in different places, but it really comes down to people. If you've got the best possible people, you'll build teams around that, regardless of where they are. But our objective is not to build uh, platforms in a lot of different geographies. I think it's better for us to have the critical mass in London to serve the rest of the world. So you'd have brokers in London traveling around to different parts of the world and servicing those retail broken clients and customers from London, more likely than being nearby in the same city as them or in the same country as them. Absolutely. It helps us build our culture. It helps build collaboration. It's easier for us to train and develop new talent than having lots of little regional offices in different places. And I suppose often that was the old international model was very much because I worked in that system in the Madrid office of the British headquartered broker. And often you have a lot of minority interests in those local companies. They weren't 100% owned and they were effectively a load of independent companies. They just happened to have the same logo, but they didn't really pull together in the same way. Without a doubt. And I think the way that we view it is we want to be a specialty wholesale distribution platform. We don't want to be retail. And many of these countries are more focused on retail platforms. Because there are a lot of markets where the wholesale function really hasn't developed in the same way. I'm sure it'll get there at some point, but it doesn't seem to be structured that way. That's correct. There was some news recently of a sale of Latin American operation in Brazil. Yes. Can you talk us through that? What's behind that? Was it not wholesale enough? We like that leadership team. They're great people. We were in partnership with them. They were a platform that we picked up during the Colmont transaction. But we respected the leadership team in Brazil, and they wanted to be part of a large retail platform. And we would never be a large retail platform. So we respected their wishes, and they went out and found a new partner. I'm sure that we'll continue to do business with them. I'm sure that we'll continue to be close friends with them because they were great partners, and we wish them well. Good. So there's nothing strategic in that. So you're still going to very much focus on Latin America and on the Brazilian market. Absolutely. And we'll have people calling on them and other brokers in the Brazilian market. I would like to talk generally about the market as a broker who is operating often in the more distressed ends of markets or the ultra specialist ends of market. Obviously, at the moment when there is distress, then wholesale brokers are always going to see that distress first. Is the market actually clearing and functioning for its ultimate clients at the moment in general? Are needs being left unmet or at the right price, the right structure, can you always get what the client actually needs, even though they may not be very happy? I think that's a good way of looking at it, Mark. I think we can get solutions, but oftentimes those solutions are not what the client wants. 
but we are still able to find capacity. We can find it at a price. We can find it at different terms and conditions. So the market is functioning as it should do, and it will go on functioning as it should do. And I've no doubt that at this price point, other people at some point will come in. And that's our job as brokers is to always find that new capacity that's interested in getting into a new class of business. Well, certainly it's starting to enter the public consciousness. The main financial share tipping weeklies, financial magazines, has got Invest in Lloyds of London on the front cover for the first time in its probably in its history that they've even noticed that Lloyds of London exists. But so it's seeping into the public consciousness. And if that's on the front of that magazine, then that's going to get into all sorts of places and certainly into the psyche of the investing public. Yeah. And I think from that perspective, my message to Lloyds and the London market is lean in. Here's an opportunity. Take care of the clients that have been in the London market and let's lean in. It's an opportunity for us to demonstrate the value of the London market. Yeah. And to do more, I suppose. Correct. And that's what we need is we need more capacity. We need more people to look at risks and feel like they can participate on them and make some money. Excellent. So sort of answering my other part of the question, is London leaning in enough at the moment? Obviously, at the moment, you'd like it to be doing more and saying yes more than no. I don't want to pick on London. I would love every market to lean in more. We need capacity. There are a lot of clients out there that are frustrated because they are seeing rate increases when their risk has never had a loss. And so there's a lot of frustrated people out there. So all I would say is there are some very, very good risks out there. People shouldn't paint every insured in the same fashion. And obviously London likes to paint itself as an innovative market. And it certainly is over the years. You think of all the different products that have been developed here. And of course, the subscription market being a really good place, sort of good Petri dish for testing out new ideas in a controlled environment where you don't have to take 100% of that risk. Is it innovating enough at the moment? You mentioned Berkshire Hathaway. They are very innovative. London, I think, is innovative and they've done a very good job. But I think that it's not just London that's innovating. There's a lot of people out there that are looking at risks differently. And I think we spend a lot of time in this marketplace because the property market is so difficult, focused purely on property. But there is innovation going on out there. You looked at digital innovation. There's plenty of people doing some very creative things in that space, us included. We're trying to sort of provide our retail clients with better tools in order to provide them with digital solutions for their clients. And the final question about London specifically. I often get accused, probably correctly, of being a bit London-centric, but then it's easy when you're in London all the time, you get that way. But how is it faring sort of as a total percentage of the Amwins book? Is it holding its own or is it increasing share or is it... London is certainly growing. And that's as a result of a number of things. One is the market environment, but also opportunity over here. We've made a small acquisition last year to give us a specialty capability on upstream energy. We've hired a casualty team. We've hired a product recall group, and we've got plenty of other hires in the hopper right now. So it's exciting. I think London will grow as a percentage of our overall portfolio because it remains a very important marketplace. We talk about innovation. And of course, we've had a huge period of outsized investment in technology as an industry. And it's probably something we haven't seen. It's even given itself a name of, you know, in tech, the phenomenon and Amwins as a group has been involved in quite a lot of that. And certainly you've made investments in that side of things on electronic placing. What do you think is going to happen? Are we prepared for this digital marketplace? And I've spent most of my career being either as a broker, watching the market slowly digitize and then 
take two steps forward and then one or two, sometimes three steps back. Are we going to get there? It seems certainly in London, we've got quite a lot of initiatives at the moment that are building some what look like solid foundations that we're going to step off into a digital world. Hopefully, 10 years' time, we'll have a digital world. One, do you think we're going to get there? And two, what do you think it's going to look like when it's out of the box? Mark, I'm sure that anybody knows me are leaning in at this point in the interview. And they're going, I can't wait to know what he thinks, because I've always been a transactional sales guy, transactional broker. So the digital world is not really my space. But one of the things that we've seen is there's been an evolution over the past 20 years. And we've been lucky enough to have the leadership within Amwins that has really sort of thought about this and made investments in this space. You know, our technology, our data and analytics, I think is better than anybody in our space. We've got terrific data on our entire portfolio. We just modeled $5.5 billion worth of property portfolio. It gives us a competitive advantage. And so to talk about this space, we're leaning in in digital sales. We are leaning in with data and analytics because I think it is going to be a differentiator. Where does it go from here? I think that there are certain products that can be sold in a digital environment. The simpler, easier products But there's certainly a lot of products which are a lot more complex that need bodies, they need people, they need expertise. And it's not easy to do that in a digital environment. So what's it going to look like in 20 years' time? Good heavens, I have no idea. But I can tell you that we're making investments. We watched the insurtechs make their investments, lose their shirts, and another one pops up somewhere else. We've been very deliberate in our strategy around what are we doing in data and analytics and digital sales, and we will continue to. And I think that our clients are looking to us for better sales tools. They're looking for better benchmarking tools. They're looking for better analytics on their own books of business. And I think that that's going to be something which is going to be important for every wholesale broker, regardless of their location, to deliver to their clients. I like that you're coming from this more from a practical point of view, more, you know, somebody who's a transactional person. And I suppose you're not worried about what the grand vision is. You're just going to say, well, let's digitize things we can digitize that are in front of us and that are easy to digitize. And then when we've done that, then our digital capabilities will be so great that at some point we'll be able to digitize more things that are more complicated. So that seems to be more of a sort of practical, let's just get on with the things we can do right now. Exactly. And it's very exciting to watch the progress that we've made. It's been thoughtful. It's been collaborative with our partners, our market partners. And I think that they are recognizing that we've got scale and capabilities in distribution, which will allow that product to be sold to the 18,000 retail brokers that we do business within the United States. So something that they can really plug in almost instantaneously to get something that is then a specialty product or that is fully digital and they can simply plug in as a retail broker into that network and then they can sell that to their own network and keep it simple. Yeah. A retail broker's responsibility is to take care of the insured. Our responsibility is to find product and solution for them to deliver to their insured. We will never be in the retail market. That's not what we want to be. We've got enormous respect for our retail clients. We don't want to compete against them, but we will be bringing them different differentiated tools so that we can help them deliver unique solutions to their clients. So as you're digitizing, for example, you mentioned about you're able to model your whole property book. Is that sort of thing where you might be able to get capacity across that whole portfolio because you have 
really got a handle on it in the way that you could go straight to a reinsurance. So why don't you provide support across this book? It gives us great optics into our business. And there's going to be strategies and solutions that we're going to derive from the data that we've got. But it's not just property. We're on this journey of looking at our entire portfolio. Today, we've got property. Tomorrow, we'll have professional liability. We'll have our trucking portfolio. We'll have our construction portfolio. And this is an ongoing process. And we will be able to provide our markets and our retailers with a lot more granular information. And a lot more insights. Correct. So again, it's the sort of thing where we see things like facilitization, presumably it only becomes possible once you've really got a handle of what there is in there in, in the portfolio. And then again, we wouldn't rule that out. Yes. And we've got some very bright minds looking at it and trying to sort of figure out where there are opportunities. And there's plenty of opportunities for us. Ideally, we can build some programs. Ideally, we can find some unique solutions for some underserved clients. One last thing I wanted to ask about was talent. We've sort of touched on it earlier. I interviewed too many people who'd say, we're not doing enough about it. Yeah. What are you doing about it in terms of growing your own? Stealing other people's talent is all very well. I mean, it's great. Obviously, you can take them because if you make a more attractive business, that's fine that you're a more attractive place to work and you have a better future than where they're currently. That's absolutely fair in a competitive market, absolutely the right thing. But obviously, it's a lot of a great long-term strategy if you keep taking employees from somewhere else and then they keep taking them back from you. Yeah. We should all be growing more. So what are you doing on that front in terms of growing the market's talent pool? Our talent, I think, is unrifled. I think we've got the best people in the industry. And I think it comes down to three things. It's people with regards to recruiting, it's retention, and it's training and development. And talent decides where they want to work. And so we constantly are talking to people that want to be part of our platform. And so we will be actively recruiting people. We have always grown the business by actively recruiting people. You know, retention, we've got to make sure that this is the best place for them to work, providing them with unique tools, access to retail clients, access to markets, access to the marketplace. And so that's going to be absolutely critical to our future is making sure that we retain the best talent. There's no point in recruiting people and training people if they're just going to leave you. The other part of it is training and development. Yesterday, I met with our new training class in London. And last week, we had a training class of young people in Denver. So we're actively trying to train and develop the future talent of this company. I think the keystone for the future of Amwins is going to be building our own talent. This is an unbelievable opportunity for people to come into our business. This is a great industry. And we've got to take advantage of that and attract more talent. And I see the talent that we're attracting is better than I've ever seen before. And it's more diverse, isn't it? We have to have people with all sorts of skills that perhaps they wouldn't have needed before. Absolutely. And I think we're highly focused on making sure that we've got a diverse workforce. And so it is very exciting. And I think it's going to allow us to build a company that will be around for the next 150 years. Wow. Well, I hope we're both here to have the 150-year anniversary podcast where I, I somehow doubt that the actuaries would agree with us. James, I've really enjoyed our brief chat. It's been absolutely fantastic to see you over here in London with a big smile on your face and more power to your elbow. And we've got to book another visit and another visit to the microphone at some point in the future. I'd look forward to it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here 
and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.